So I'm here today with Ben Perkert. He is a talented poet as well as a novelist. And he just wrote a debut novel called The Men Can't Be Saved, which is kind of coming of age story about a copy writer for an ad agency. Um, it's also about masculinity and its discontents. And he's a professor of creative writing at Rutgers and a very thoughtful person. And I'm delighted to chat with him today. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So one of the core themes in your novel um, is taglines. The book's title itself is a tagline, The Men Can't Be Saved. And the uh, protagonist of your story kind of spends a lot of time coming up with taglines. It's his identity. Um, he feels a sense of bravado and a sense of uh, kind of like excellence or accomplishment from the fact that he's able to process the world through taglines. Um, and there's something that I found with that that was uncanny in its resemblance both to poetry on the one side because of the lyricism of it, the stickiness, but as you also indicate in the book, also propaganda for this for the same reasons that it's catchy. Um, and it also reminded me of another book uh, that I read by Ben Lerner, who's a poet who's meditated a lot on his own sort of complicated relationship to poetry or a book. The, the hatred of poetry, and in um, in his work, the protagonist who resembles himself is a is a debater who spends a lot of time throwing out words and not even sure if those words mean anything. Uh, but he's good at at sort of slinging words around. And I found a commonality between your sort of meditations on taglines and his meditation on what he calls spreading, which is just like when the debater kind of makes as many arguments as possible and as quick a time as possible. And both of those seem to go back to Plato and his antagonism towards poetry and towards rhetoric as somehow manipulation or deception. So that's a very open-ended uh, question, but yeah, just help me um, understand more of your relationship to taglines and what you're trying to accomplish with that as a core motif in the book. Wow. I, I love the question. Um, it, it's such a big question and it's really connected to my own process and, and writing this book. Ben Lerner, uh, you know, who started out as a poet and, and now writes novels and, and nonfiction, his first novel, Leaving the Atocha Station, came out, I think, basically the same year I graduated from my poetry MFA, I think, you know, 2012, give or take a year. And that was the book that when I read it, um, I, I just thought, you know, maybe, and this was a completely <laughs> foolish thing for me to think, but Hey, I was young. I was in my twenties. Um, I thought, you know, maybe I could do this novel thing, right? Like he made the jump from poetry to fiction. Um, Atocha Station, that book was the one that, um, gave me the, I don't know about the confidence, but made me want to try. And I think that something about Lerner's work that I love is that he's so interested um, not just in what words mean, but in what words do and what they, how they work and in service of whom. Um, so yeah, I remember that whole riff that he goes on about the spread and spreading and, and, um, the way in which words can be used, uh, to advance a certain argument, but not actually engaging in, in the work of persuasion so much as sort of like bombarding or overwhelming, um, the listener. For me, taglines 
they do something similar, right? Like when I was when I was writing taglines at at the agency, I always thought of it as a kind of soulless poetry. It was so close to what I loved about poetry. Like a great tagline, you know, it it has so many of the same elements. It's so close. It uses alliteration. It it relies upon imagery often and double meaning and double entendre and sometimes triple meaning, right? Um, I in the in the novel I talk about how a tagline is in some ways less about persuasion than it is um, an infestation of meaning. Like you almost feel like there's this plague of locusts, right? A great tagline, you read it and it, it means nothing, but it means like 80 different things all, all at the same time. Um, Nike's tagline, just do it. Like what, what does that really mean? It could, it could mean like 60 different things. It, it means everything and nothing at the same time. And, you know, I, I realized um, pretty quickly that 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 was not going to be my life's work if I could avoid it. I just wasn't, um, you know, that word soulless, right? Like it wasn't um, fulfilling for me necessarily. But I I was really interested in the way in which taglines um, took took what I loved, right? Took what I loved, which was using words in different form in in different ways and sort of shaping language and applied it to this. Um, this other thing, right, which was the work of of selling and the work of productizing and monetizing, um, that was both interesting, but also um, a little bit. Uh, I was worried about that. I didn't want to get too close to that. There was a lot in what you said. For me, it, it reminds me also of kind of. Um, so I did my PhD on Heidegger, who wrote a lot about poetry. And um, and I think Heidegger had a very complicated relationship to technology and to modernity in that he saw them on the one hand as obstructions to the poetic, something more primordial, something more free. But then he also saw modern technology as an opportunity to be poetic and to think about what modern technology does when you view it as that which ob- obstructs meaning making. Um, or, or forces meeting upon us in a way that takes away our our creativity or our play. So perhaps if you take a place that seems to lack soul um, as your subject, but you treat it from the point of view of a poet, it's a kind of paradox or it's an interesting thing to meditate on as opposed to, let's say, the romantics <laughs> who go to the nature, they leave the city um, because they, they want to escape from that which is soulless and alienating. But I think if you take the tagline as the point of meditation, it's almost like going to the ground zero of the place where poetry is, uh, is, is most challenged or something like that. And ironically enough, it, it meets its, like its evil twin or its doppelganger or something, because, you know, it, a, a tagline kind of looks like a poem as you, as you were indicating as well. It does. And th- I mean, there's so many poets who have, written taglines or poets who have worked as copywriters at different points in their lives. I mean, I think one one of the things that I struggled with, because in many ways I loved working as a copywriter, like it was an incredibly creatively fulfilling time, but it wasn't very spiritually fulfilling, which I know is something, you know, you're particularly interested in. Um, and that was ultimately why I knew I needed to leave and get back to poetry because I just, you know, writing these taglines for, for companies or for brands, um, everything sort of felt on the outside of art. And so in that way, in that way, it was more sort of scary for me because it engaged a lot of the muscles that I love to use, 
I was, I was living such a privileged life. I was getting to play with words every day and I was getting to work with graphic designers every day. And so it felt artistically fulfilling in all the ways that art can fulfill, except for the most meaningful one, which was that it, it, it felt on the outside of, you know, whatever it is for you, right? Whether that's the soul or the heart or the mind, it was all in service of some other end. We need to sell more, you know, widgets, right? Or whatever, whatever it is, we need to move more product. And so Ben, your words, if the client likes them, which they probably won't, but if they, if they, if for whatever reason, the client buys into whatever you're selling that day, um, you know, that that's the measure of a good tagline. And I, I do think that's where, you know, the whole discussion of can advertising be art when a museum, for example, showcases an Andy Warhol exhibit and Andy Warhol, who famously did a lot of, you know, advertising and then sort of spoofs on that advertising. Like what, what qualifies, what belongs in the halls of that museum? Can we credibly call an advertisement a piece of art? And I'm not sure I necessarily have the answer to that question, but I do think it's a dangerous thing. I think it's, it's risky when we start to say, oh yeah, there's no difference, right? This tagline is so poetic that yeah, we can call it a poem. That to me feels like a really dangerous slippage. And that, that's one that I think my novel's interested in looking at. So is the reason why a tagline is problematic because it's trying to sell something? And so it's the, it's the nature of the relationship that's problematic because you're just being sold changes the relationship or is it the specific things that you're trying to sell? So if you were selling something that was, was a worthy end, then the tagline could be, could be a beautiful thing, but because you're selling widgets, it's not. And just to follow up on that question, so I think you, like your book is hilarious, and I laughed out loud many times reading it. Um, but I think what made your core example in the book so compelling was the idea of selling a brand for something that is ostensibly good for the world, namely like awareness of men's health, awareness of prostate cancer, trying to mobilize people, let's say, to donate to an institution that in theory could move the needle and uh solving, you know, uh, curing something uh, that brings a lot of pain and suffering. So like, I know that that was deployed somewhat cynically. Um, and, and, the, and the title says the men can't be saved in part because like the chances of surviving prostate cancer are so low anyways, where would all those donations go? Um, <laughs> but that being said, like, good people also need to sell widgets for goodness, right? Hmm. Yeah. And I think what defines, you know, what do we mean by problematic, right? Like there's, there's a spectrum to all of this stuff and I'm not necessarily trying to cast moral judgment on anyone, but when I worked at the agency, um, or I worked at, you know, a few different branding agencies, there was always a question of what kinds of clients we were going to work with. Um, so, you know, for example, like a fossil fuel company or a tobacco company or, you know, some of these companies that um, morally you, you might just not want to associate yourself with, that, that feels like a place where you as a creative can start to draw a line. And obviously, the more senior you are, the more say you have in some of that. Um, but then there's the larger moral question that I think you're asking too of, of just, you know, forget about selling something that maybe has a negative um, a negative 
outcome or, or, you know, negative repercussions for society. What about selling something, you know, a widget for good, or in the case of my book, um, helping support a prostate cancer research organization, which is one of the, the clients that Seth writes for unsuccessfully. Um, you know, that, that definitely feels um, like a worthier end. But I think, again, it, it's really only problematic from my standpoint, from the perspective of when you start to say, oh, well, this, you know, this is art. Um, because if, if, if that's going to be the measure of a good tagline versus a bad tagline is one that sells a good product versus a bad product, I, I think it's inherent in the selling that something really meaningful is lost. Now, when you define selling, are you saying money is being exchanged or is it a deeper point of like you want something from the person that you are pitching? And so whether they pay with attention or they pay with um, being persuaded to your cause, that that also is a kind of sale. Like if you write a poem about why global warming is bad and you need to do something about it. and you're not directly soliciting people for donations and it's more just like raising awareness so to say is that is that the same as writing copy for let's say a nonprofit or a for profit i don't i don't know that it's the same but but that is how i'm thinking about it yeah i mean when when you have the agenda for the poem or even the agenda for the novel planned in advance of the creative exercise of writing the piece i do think there's something suspect about that. Again, there are, there are, you know, I'm not trying to impugn or slander artists who approach their work that way. Right. I mean, there, there's lots of great artists who do. Um, but you know, the poet Yusuf Kumunyaka talks about how if, if sort of, and I'm going to butcher this, but if you know, um, the emotion that you want to engender, um, in the reader for the poem in advance, or if you know the emotion that, that is driving the poem in advance, it's sort of the poem then risks becoming an advertisement for that emotion. And I think that word advertisement is, is really interesting and purposeful and connected to what I'm talking about here. So no, I, I don't just think that, um, strictly speaking, selling has to be, you know, selling a product in exchange for money. I think that selling can be, um, you know, when a, when a government, for example, commissions, um, an art project, um, there's an agenda there. Right. And so that, that also can, can be a kind of selling. And I, again, I don't want to say that it invalidates, um, the quality of, of the art necessarily, but I do think it's really worth looking hard at. So this is kind of a complicated question to get out, but it's something to the effect of like, do you think your position is the equivalent of art for art's sake or art as process rather than art as product? Um, or how do you differentiate what you're saying in terms of art ought not be uh, an advertisement or at least your art ought not be an advertisement from that sort of more traditional aesthetic view that art can either be propaganda or it has to be self-referential? Yeah. And I would just caution and say, I'm, you know, I'm not here to tell anyone how to, how to make their art. Um, so every, every artist, every writer finds their own way for me, everything, you know, of everything you said there, art as process versus art as product like that, that feels most connected to my own personal worldview. I, in the process of writing this novel, I wanted to discover what the novel was about. Um, I did not, you know, approach it with an agenda. And that's not to say necessarily that, that it comes from a pure place for it. It's also not to say that 
art cannot, you know, engage in, in the work of, of politics and, and messaging on some level. But I do think that if you know exactly what the political message is going in, and it's exactly the same as the political message going out, I do think it's worth questioning, you know, what, what have you just engaged in then? Like, have you just maybe built an elaborate advertisement for whatever it was that you started with? Or have you sort of gone through a process of change? I, I like this idea of discovery a lot, and um, it resonates for me. I'm thinking about um, another aspect of your book that was that might relate to this, which is the idea that, so Seth, who's the protagonist, um, in some ways thinks he's exceptional uh, relative to everyone else around him. And the way in which he thinks he's exceptional is maybe under underdeveloped. Like I think there's a lot of different ways in which he might think he's different. Um, but one way might be, I'm not like those jerks, those toxic men who kind of, you know, are arrogant or mistreat women or whatever it is, you know, I'm different. And then I think the book ironically suggests that maybe he's not that different. Like he, he, he's on a spectrum with them. Um, he's maybe slightly better in some ways, but then because he's self-deceived, um, there are ways in which he's worse. And I guess, um, the question is a poet in an ad agency, is the poet really different from everyone else around? Or is the poet self-deceived about his or her own specialness? And everybody is a kind of poet who's been entrapped by the system and maybe over time they lose the poetry, but these creatures are all fundamentally the same. So you can you can take that question either as a literary or philosophical one or more, more as a personal exploration of like, what is it like to be a poet feeling out of place in an ad agency? And what if everybody's feeling out of place? Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, part, part of what I loved, I have a lot to say in response to this, but part of what I loved so much about working at a, at a ad agency branding agency, and I'm using them interchangeably, even though I do think that, uh, you know, there, there is an interesting change there from advertising to branding that we can talk about or not, but, one of the things that I love just about, I'll say, agency in general, about working in an agency, is that you have all of these artists. I mean, you have the the folks who come in from the strategy side, oftentimes who went to business school, and they're, you know, they're bringing sort of like a consultant's mindset to the whole work. But in the creative studio with the writers and the graphic designers, everyone's an artist. Um, so in no way was I really unique. Um, because you know, I, I was writing poems and publishing poems sometimes, and I, I wanted to go to grad school for creative writing. That didn't make me unique. It just made me, you know, one of many people with artistic um, aspirations. But I, I do think that there are folks who, um, over time, you know, it 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 serves the creative to think of their advertising or branding output as art, right? Like it's a lot, it's a lot easier to start to think of it. Well, you know, maybe this isn't the art that I wanted to make. Maybe this isn't the the sort of sketch work or visual art that I wanted to make um, before becoming a graphic designer at an agency. But man, you know, creating this logo really feels similar, or designing this website really feels similar. Um, so sometimes you would see, you know, creatives. The longer you stay in the job, you know, it. it 
you're incentivized to sort of merge the two visions in your mind. And then there's the other person who always sees it as sort of a clear cut distinction. There's the art that I make on the weekends, and then there's you know the work that I have to do. Um, and I was interested in both perspectives. And I'm not, you know, again, I'm not here to judge one or the other, but I do think that one of the things I try to do in the novel is explore how different reasonable people can engage with the sort of work that um, that agencies demand and see it in very different ways and, and you know, still do a good job. Um, it was one of the things that I loved about Mad Men. Um, the show Mad Men came out, I think, um, basically in, in like 2007 or 2008. It was, it was more or less the same exact time that I started working at an agency. And for the first time, even though obviously Mad Men set in a very different era, you know, you, you got a sense of that, right? Like all of the people who work with Don Draper, all of them, you know, whether it's Peggy or whoever else, like they all have their own artistic aspirations. They all have their own ego. Um, and some of them, the ones who thrive are able to take that and channel it into the, the work that they have to do every day. And then others, like I'm thinking about that guy Cosgrove. I don't know if you watched the series, but like he's got his stories coming out in the Atlantic and he's got like his whole other life as an artist. Um, you know, that, that, that personality, um, that trait was something that I wanted to really look at, um, in this, in this book. When you worked in agencies, were you thinking one day I'm going to go become a professor or like, what was your vision for yourself? Or did you think that you could make this life work for you and, and sort of find a way to harmonize the, the nine to five with the, the sort of inner life of the romantic, like almost like a Wallace Stevens, if you if you want to say it like that, although I maybe with more crossover since you're not doing insurance. <laughs> um, I, I, I knew pretty early on that this was not going to be a life um, that I really wanted to continue with. I, I knew pretty early on. Out of college, I, I really wanted to get my my MFA. Um, I wanted to go to school. I wanted to be a poet. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to be a novelist at the time, but I, I knew that I loved writing and my own creative writing. And that was what I wanted to develop. And I had a mentor who, I don't want to say discouraged me, but really urged me to, to not take that path immediately, to take some time between undergrad and grad school. And it was, her name is Jory Graham, um, a, a, an incredible poet. She was the one who, and it's so funny because Jory is the least, um, <laughs> she, you know, she's not one of these like get a job, live in the real world type of people. And yet whenever I caught her on that day in May of 20, you know, 2007 or whatever it was, right. When I was about to graduate, um, this was the piece of advice that she gave me. And it, it wound up being great advice because in a way, um, I, I, First of all, it was helpful, right, just to to make some money and and you know not have to um, be able to to work off some of that debt. Although working at an agency isn't super lucrative, at least it wasn't when I was there. But um, it was great, just sort of as a as a a dip into this world, and the agency world is such a colorful one. And again, I I think Mad Men does a, a great job of portraying that the egos. Um, the, the large personalities, but also the toxicity. And I, 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 in many ways it felt like this, um, 
three, four year stint where I could just absorb and be surrounded by characters. And so on the other side of it, I wanted to write about those characters. I wanted to, to capture what some of that was like um, from my perspective. You wrote the book as a novel rather than as nonfiction, although it seems like a lot of your life experience informs your ability to write uh, in sort of psychographic detail about about what this world is. How do you think about the relationship between Ben, the author, and Seth, the protagonist? Um, and how do how are you gesturing at that insofar as Seth himself muses on the relationship between ventriloquist and dummy when he's in an altered state? Well, I, I guess I should say right at, at the jump, I mean, Seth is not me. He, he's a character. He's a work of fiction. Uh, are there certain strands that I can recognize? Sure. Um, you know, this is not a huge spoiler, but I think you get a pretty clear sense from uh, the first or second page that, that Seth has a pretty inflated sense of his own um, ego, his own, you know, how he, his standing at the agency. And so he's not going to have that job for very long. And, you know, he ultimately, or not ultimately, but one step on his downward spiral journey is that he works at a, a coffee shop, which is also a chocolate shop. You know, I also did that. I worked at a place called Burdex, um, which is a, a coffee shop slash chocolate shop. So there are definitely points or chapters in the book that I can look at. You know, he goes on birthright. I went on birthright, things like that, um, where there's commonalities, but, um, he's, I would like to think, and, and maybe I've done my job halfway decently well, if, if he is his own creation and you asked why write it as fiction versus creative nonfiction. Um, I, I had a blast writing this as a, as a piece of fiction. Um, another way of saying it is my life on its own is not interesting enough. Um, I'm, I'm too boring. I'm too responsible. Seth makes so many bad decisions um, that I would never make or, or I'm too timid to make. Uh, and so uh, that for me, and that, that's connected to what we were talking about earlier, the sense of discovery. Um, I, and there are so many writers of nonfiction who are just so brilliant and who I'm sure have their own discovery in their process. But for me, part of the, the joy and discovery of this was um, going from the first page to the final page and then sort of stepping back and saying, how did this how did this unfold? Because I hadn't, I hadn't mapped it out. I hadn't outlined. I did the EL Doctoro thing where you, you know, drive at night um, just by the light of your headlights and eventually you end up somewhere. And if, if I hadn't had that as the carrot at the end, I'm not sure I would have, um, I worked on the book for almost a decade. I don't, I'm not sure I would have had the carrot at the end that I needed to sort of keep going. Beautiful answer. Um, just coming back to the theme of the ventriloquist and the dummy, that was a, a theme that I found very interesting in the work. Um, just this idea that in some sense, the ventriloquist and the dummy, although separate, kind of impact one another. And there's a, a point of indistinction where it's not clear who's influencing whom. And so maybe another way of asking the question is, do you feel that in writing about or through Seth, that Seth influenced you? or changed you beyond it just being a creative exercise. And maybe you could say, you know, is it a creative exercise if it hasn't changed you on some level? Or if you, if you have like, maybe that's part of what the measure of what a creative exercise is or, or should be ideally. 
Um, I think, you know, everything that I've written, whether it's poems that became my first poetry book or whether, whether it's uh, this novel, I think changes me or, or changes the writer in some way. Uh, it's not always entirely clear what that way is, but I do think that, I mean, Seth is just, he's so blind. He, he cannot see himself at all. Um, he's incredibly narcissistic. He's, he's deeply self-centered and yet he really has no perspective on, on himself or how he's seen. And so there's all these moments in the novel where we learn who Seth is largely through the characters around him, right? Because um, if we just, it, the book is in first person, if we were to just take Seth's word for everything, we would have a very different idea of who he is, but we get these sort of cracks or these moments where the light comes in and we see, oh, actually maybe Seth is not quite as hot shit as he thinks he is. And I think that I, in writing this book, I thought a lot about um, men in my life uh, and their sometimes reluctance to look at their own actions um, with any sort of objectivity. Like there's that, that meme from a year ago. I don't know if you saw it, but we're Twitter friends. So maybe, maybe if I'm seeing it, Elon Musk is probably forcing you to see it too. But you know, that meme where it's like men would rather do X, Y, Z. Oh yeah. I love that meme. Yeah. I, <laughs> I love it too. And I mean, that is, that is so Seth, right? He would tell you that he's really introspective. Um, but of course he's not. And you know, I, it, and I say men in my life, but I also, of course, mean myself too, right? Like what are all the ways in which I am ignorant or I look um, the other way when there are things that I need to fix about, about myself? So has Seth changed me? I, I, I want to say yes. Mm. Beautiful. One of the, so there are a couple alternatives to the ad agency uh, or branding agency, we can get into that distinction. Um, I, I know that that is a distinction that that Seth insists upon, so my bad there. Um, but there are some alternatives to that world, which I personally, reading the book, would call nihilistic in a way. Like may, maybe there's an artistic element there, but like I felt that it was, from my point of view, um, relatively shallow. And um, you offer birthright as a as a potential alternative, uh, which I guess could be a kind of nationalism or tribal identity uh, based upon, based in politics, let's say, or based in identity or belonging. And you offer Chabad, um, which I suppose is the more religious form of that, um, you know, not not Zionism, but but a kind of uh, apolitical tribalism or I don't know, uh, ritual ritual focused tribalism or something like that. And those don't work out for Seth either. But um, I think it was a it was an interesting like sociograph sociological sort of observation about modern life and what are the choices that we have the theoretical choices that we have for um, feeling a life of meaning right. So there's like politic there's po political involvement there's religious involvement and maybe there's art or and or commercial uh, commercial life. And none of those come out particularly well. Um, <laughs> um, do you feel like, I don't know, there, there's a question in this, which is kind of why, why were those the options that you were drawn to laying out? And like, what do you, since Ben is not Seth, like, where do you come down prescriptively um, 
for on, on the question of like how do you make the life of meaning that isn't that isn't beholden to commercialism or nihilism on the one side, but isn't sort of fundamentalist or blind to the modern world as you often find in sort of more socially conservative um, religious pockets where there's sort of the, the trade that you make is a kind of, you get a kind of naivete um, and innocence, but you you then have no knowledge of or no transaction with that sort of, you know, dirty modern world. I think I'll try to answer it in, in terms of the book and in terms of, you know, in terms of the novel and Seth's decisions. So after he loses his job, right? I mean, he, he's from the very first page of the book, um, it's so clear that being a tagline copywriter and and having his tagline go viral, like this is this is such a huge part of um, of who he is, and it's a huge part of his identity, and it's a huge part of his brand. And once that all gets taken away, um, we have to watch him, or you know that sounds like obligatory, like you're taped to a chair or something. But um, we get the pleasure, I think, <laughs> for some readers, hopefully, of watching him sort of fight and claw to, to rebrand or to figure out like, okay, well, who is he now? Right. Which, and the question of who is he versus how does he appear to others is a question that is very, um, I don't, I don't know that I'm nihilistic on it, but there is a sort of cynicism, I think, right. Because, and, and this is where I zoom out and talk about like the social media age, but I do think in the social media age, like, you know, is everyone just having fun all the time or is everyone just highlighting the photos of their trip to Cancun and actually like they're sitting alone like most of us? And like, wh- like where is the soul in all of that versus the projected identity? Um, I think for Seth, Judaism or Jewishness, which we can talk about, um, becomes much more important when his other brand, his other identity falls away. And so... Um, I think, you know, his, his interest in Chabad and, and going to Chabad like that, um, I don't, I don't, I think there is something real there. Like, I think Seth is, is desperate for, for company, for companionship, for friendship, um, for brotherhood. Um, I think spirituality, you know, maybe, um, but I think he's also looking to identify more strongly as a Jew because he's, he's lost this other He's lost this other thing that, frankly, he would rather have. I, I think um, all things being all things being equal, Seth would rather have the fancy office and the the fancy business cards, and you know that's the title that he really wants. But well, if that goes away, I'm always Jewish. <laughs> like I can always sort of dust that off and and you know I say you know a, a couple prayers, and I, I can kind of get my way back in. It's an insurance policy. Because as you point out, like you don't have to try out for the team. Like you're you're on the team no matter what. <laughs> and I, I guess it's good those two examples of of both birthright and chabad in particular. Um, I kind of have that as their core theology, right? With Zionism, a Jewish body has a right to return no matter what. Um, and with chabad, it's uh, it's a Jewish soul that has is is being defined a priori as having never left. So right, I don't know if you know this, but there's these. Uh, an idea of the Pintalayid, the little Jew, uh, the kind of ghost in the machine that sits in all Jews. So no matter how secular or fallen you are, so to say, within that framework, like 
there's always something that that wants to be saved or wants to come back or is you know is connected so suppose i suppose it's a it's a interesting reframe of the pentelid that a person might almost try to assimilate or try to accomplish the pinnacle of american capitalist culture but you know if that doesn't go wrong i can always <laughs> call on the pentelid that's i mean that should have been the title of the book really now that i know that we'll have to you know we'll have to we'll have to go back i guess that's incredible i didn't know that but it's also, I mean, it, it's an incredible privilege, right? Like, I, you know, I, I'm cognizant speaking to you that that you're a rabbi and that you have this training, right? Like Jew, being Jewish and, uh, you know, some people would say that, that Seth is not truly Jewish or that I am not truly Jewish, right? Like there's, there's that game that can be played um, to really ill effect, I think, about, you know, who is Jewish enough and what qualifies. But um, I can't argue with the fact that like... For, for you and, and your work as a rabbi um, is a labor and an intensity of study and a commitment um, that is so different from the college kid, let's say, who just puts his hand up and says, you know, oh yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like a free trip. Like, sure, I'll, I'll go to Israel without really thinking about um, geopolitically what that might mean or, or you know, or, or just thinking about Israel and its history and, and what is, you know, all, all the complexities therein, right? Um, so it's really, it's quite privileged of Seth to just kind of know that if he needs a dinner and a shower and, um, some friendship that Chabad will be there to sort of take him in. On the other hand, Chabad is getting something out of that transaction too. And Birthright is getting something out of that transaction too. So I do think that the book, insofar as it's a book interested in, um, advertising and business in some sense, is, I don't know, I, if not cynical, at least trying to be clear-eyed about what that what that looks like for both parties. That's a great point. Like, I mean, it, it is sometimes cynical, I'd say, to talk about religious phenomena through the lens of business, but like Chabad is a great brand. I mean, forget, forget what you think about its theology or its sociology. Like, it's probably one of the most well-recognized uh, storefronts, so to say, for, for Jewish you know, for Jewish mission or Jewish consciousness, like there's a Chabad house in every city in the world. And the fact that even Seth knows to find his way to a Chabad and was it like Allentown, Pennsylvania or whatever, I think like, even if, even if the particular rabbi ends up being an ignoramus or a hypocrite or whatever, like, I don't think that dilutes the brand of Chabad. So one of the shocking things actually reading the book was that Seth walks around with a copy of Derrida's Archive Fever. I was not expecting that um, just because I suppose my own bias is like a, a self-absorbed narcissist would never would never read Derrida. Like it just felt so out of place, which of course is not true, right? And and I'm sure, I mean, I don't, I never knew Derrida the man, but like I wouldn't be surprised if Derrida was an egomaniac um, based upon kind of... <laughs> some of the, the ways that he talks and writes. Um, so, so it's not at all a contradiction, but like when I think about like, what does it feel like to read a Derrida essay as compared to what does it feel like to be in a glitzy office? Like they feel very far removed from one another. And Derrida was a, was a Jew who had a very complicated relationship to his own Judaism. He didn't circumcise his sons. He like, I think, is famous for having said, I sometimes pass as an atheist, um, which is which is a great line. Um, but 
yeah, you have you have Seth walking around with this Derrida and the line that sticks for him and that he's going around meditating on is um, I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but a distinction between Jewishness and Judaism. Do you do you happen to have that line? I think so. Maybe this is the line. If Judaism is terminable, Jewishness is interminable. It can survive Judaism. Yeah. If so, if Judaism is terminable, Jewishness is interminable. I I think the meaning of that is uh, Judaism defined as some kind of religiosity or some kind of tradition with with uh, with boundaries is different than Jewishness, which is maybe something more psychological or subjective or um, some kind of cultural vestige of this religion that lives on. So like, even if most Jews don't keep the Jewish religion and they wouldn't ascribe to Judaism, they might still ascribe to Jewishness, um, which I don't know, that's like, that seems true enough in the short run. I don't know if I would agree with that, let's say over a thousand years, um, if Jewishness can can be interminable separate from religion, but that's a side point. But how do you think about Judaism versus Jewishness or why is that why is that Derrida line so important in the book? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you throw a line in a book, not necessarily because you fully understand it, just because you you love it or you're interested in it, right? Um I, I do love it and I am interested in it. Uh, I, you know, it's one of those lines and I'm, I'm not, I, I should back up a second. So I, I took a, a seminar on Derrida um, with a, um, a professor in, in college and I just loved it. And the, the class had one of those, you know, really um, long sort of course titles about, about Derrida and his work. Um, but the professor was constantly telling us that basically like the, the registrar wouldn't let him title the class what he wanted to title it, which was just Derrida, colon, Jew slash not a Jew. Um, and that that was, you know, really like the unofficial title for the class. And so Derrida's relationship to Judaism and identity has always just really been interesting to me. Um, I think, you know, Seth has a copy of Archive Fever, not because Archive Fever means so much or because he's got such great insights. I, I think it's because you know, Seth took a class on, on deconstruction and has a few books on his shelf. And, you know, that's the one that he reached for that day. Um, although maybe, maybe not right. Readers can, I'd be interested if, if readers felt differently. Um, but that line specifically about Jewishness, um, and Judaism and what is terminable and what is interminable. Um, for me, it, it connects back to this idea of brand. Um, the thing about a brand is that it's not alive. Right. And so it's sort of impossible to kill. Um, I think that, you know, God forbid, right. But like the history of our people, the history of the Jewish people is largely one of, of persecution. And so, um, you know, you can have Jewishness live on without the Jews. That That's a terrifying prospect, but we see this in other cultures too, right? Like we have, you know, there are things from, the Mayan people that that are just like part have been absorbed into our cultural, you know, cultural habits or cuisine or whatever, right? And and it, it, it's actually scary um, to think about how that extraction or that divorce process happens, right? But um, you know, bagels will live on, Jewish humor will live on, um, all these qualities of, of Jewishness, the sort of the sort of brand um, qualities 
you know, they, they can, they can live on because they're not really alive in the first place. Um, but Judaism, that practice and the people who practice it, um, are a much more, uh, vulnerable, but also a much more holy thing, I think. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of my read on it, you know? That's deep. <laughs> There's a lot there. I mean, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to moments in the Bible where God, um, threatens the destruction of the Jewish people. Um, for example, after the sin of the golden calf, um, God offers Moses to wipe out the Israelites and start over with a new people. Um, so Moses could lead the second people um, to the promised land and Moses rejects the offer and sort of says, you know, write me out of the book if, if, if you're not, if you're not going to work with this people, um, which from a meta point of view, like that's, that's evidence that Moses was a good leader and a humble leader was the fact that he sort of, he didn't take the bribe. Um, he didn't take the easy job. He sort of said, um, no, God, like the point is to change the people and educate them, rehabilitate them. You can't just sort of throw it in the trash every time, you know, it's not going your way. But the fact that God makes this offer, even just rhetorically, actually does suggest <laughs> that the origins of this distinction between Judaism and Jewishness are pretty old and maybe even theological in a way. Um like I, Jakob Taubes, who was himself a super complicated uh, Jew and person, probably just quite a mentally ill person. I read his biography recently, but he's also a great um, a great theorist who um, who claimed that the the origins of the final solution are in the Bible and points to that passage that I just mentioned as sort of like the first evidence that genocide the genocidal uh, urge to destroy Jewish people actually comes from within the Bible itself. Hmm. I think he, he said that in Germany in like the sixties um, <laughs> to like mostly non-Jewish audience, which is like pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know how to touch that or even, or even get into it, but. Um... Well, well, maybe I'll just add on to this. Cause like one of the themes that sort of wrapped up in Judaism, both from the inside and the outside is like God, the father, um and right the, the book is the men can't be saved and i think they're like judaism also obviously has the torah of the mothers but like classically and traditionally there's you know avinu our father uh, uh, avinu our father our king and maybe the the question of can the men be saved also relates to this issue of paternity and theological paternity and like what do we do with an ancient tradition that um that that for a lot of its history did operate within a patriarchal framework. So I don't know, you know, what baby and what bathwater uh, we want to call what, but there's there seems to be like, and that's a Kafka's theme as well, right? For him, his his Jewishness is deeply tied up in his relationship to his father, who he hates, um, and so he kind of rejects Jewish religion on the basis of his problematic relationship with his dad. Do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah. So the title of the book is The Men Can't Be Saved. And I think that part of what I'm doing with that title or part of what the book is doing with that title is to try to provoke a little bit, but also just to to ask, to, to get readers or to get people asking, you know, well, what does it mean to be saved in the first place? Like, what would it like, are, are we trying to suggest that um, men writ large are, are in crisis or, or something specific to, to Jewish men? 
um, or, you know, and, and does saved mean, are we talking literally saved? Or are we talking metaphorically saved, right? Like there's lots of different places that we can go there. Um, part of why I think I landed on that word saved in particular is because of the religious connotation or, or significance. Um, you know, not, not can the men be fixed, um, but can, can men find a kind of salvation, right? Um, and I think that, you know, that, that's something that sure has resonance for, for the Jewish people, but, but I also think it's just like societally, like, like, not that I'm, you know, a sociologist, not that I'm going to say anything that we don't know, but so many of society's ills, so many of, of the issues that we're struggling with, um, as you know, Americans, as, as a people right now do feel like they're deeply connected to, um, men making bad decisions, right. Men behaving badly. Um, and so what does, what does that redemption arc look like? If in fact there is the possibility of one, um, is, is something that I'm curious about. And, and that, you know, I don't know how directly that, that ties into genocidal impulses, but the question of like, what do we do with men? Right. <laughs> we're not, we're, we're not going to kill all the guys. And, and, and certainly like, you know, um, there, there's no solution there. So how might we actually begin that work of, of looking inward, um, is a question that I think, you know, a lot of men specifically need to be asking. Mm. I hadn't thought about it in this way, but we, so we just celebrated Pesach and, um, there's, uh, an insight from Aviva Zornberg that the women who left Egypt actually did make it into the promised land. So there was an edict um, against the generation that wandered in the desert for 40 years, that because of their various rebellions, they were not allowed to go to the promised land. But Zornberg claims that that was only on the men. So interestingly enough, the men can't be saved was, uh, <laughs> was literally true in that case. And the women for her represent the unconscious, um, of the text while the men represent the conscious of the text. So there's kind of like, in other words, the sort of, um, there's a there's a something latent in the text that has been repressed or buried that continues on even though the official part of the text is telling a more like let's say black and white story of uh, either saved or not saved and the, the women the women are kind of like um, working more behind the scenes in this more ambiguous way maybe so your book is funny um, I mean it's also dark and sad and like moving but i would say like you took a heavy subject which is like being lost being a narcissist being addicted um being insecure like those things and you wrote about it in a way that was like i didn't think it was mean like i wasn't laughing at the character um but like i was definitely laughing at this world and so i don't know um how you think about humor um, or maybe you don't think about it, it's just natural to you, but what is sort of, what does humor unlock for you in, in telling this kind of a story? And do you feel that humor is for you a Jewish mode in any way? Hmm. One, in, in the acknowledgements for the book, um, I give a shout out to my, one of my high school English teachers, uh, Mr. Mario Costa, who, I don't know if he told the whole class this or if he just pulled me aside and, and told me this either way. Um, he said, you know, the only thing more tragic than tragedy is comedy. And that's something that 
I've always, um, I remember when he told me that, you know, and I was like 16 or 17, it was like, oh, holy shit. I mean, that, that is dark, right? The only thing more tragic than tragedy is comedy. Um, but I, I, I've, I've held that quote close and, um, a lot of my favorite art, like a lot of my favorite films, um, my favorite movie is, is, I don't know if you've seen being John Malkovich, um, yeah, it's my favorite movie. It's so uh, so. Any uh, any listeners, if you if you dug that, not that my book is anywhere similar really to that, but maybe just in terms of sensibility. If you, if you got down with that film, uh, maybe my novel is, is worth a look. Maybe not. But um, one of the things I love about that movie is that I remember it would be on Comedy Central, and um, it was like, what is this doing on Comedy Central? It's not really a comedy right? It's, it's a little too dark and strange. It's, it's got all these different elements in it, but, um, it still, it lived comfortably there because it was just really funny. Right. And so even if it didn't, um, fit really neatly, you know, another example might be succession, um, a show that is really, really dark and intense drama, but, but also you could call a comedy. So I, I'm, I love writing, um, TV, art that sort of lives a little bit at the discomfort of that border between. Um, and so I'm, I'm not interested in writing a comedy per se. I'm interested in writing something that feels like a serious piece, but also brings in humor, brings in light. Um, is that a specifically Jewish impulse? I don't think it's specifically Jewish, but I do think that, you know, a lot of my favorite, comedians, um, whether it's, you know, Larry David or, or whoever else, right? Like they, they, they weave that in all the time. Um, and my favorite comedian growing up was Robin Williams. And I think that, you know, Robin Williams, you know, the thing that I loved in some ways most about Robin Williams, cause he was so frenetic and so high energy and so like, there was something you would, you would watch Robin. He, he was just like pouring sweat. Um, you could, if you ever watched him in the in-between moments, like he'd get a really good laugh out of his audience. And then there was almost like a, a flash of fear across his face because he knew that at the end of that laugh was going to be silence. And he had to sort of like start up the engine again. Right. Um, that desperation to make people laugh and to keep them laughing was a big part of, not what I found funny about Robin Williams, but what I found a little bit sad, like that inability to kind of just accept um, and sit with the silence was something that I think he, he didn't have. Um, that's just my own read. I haven't, you know, uh, but I guess, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think that the division or the dichotomy between comedy and drama or comedy and tragedy is all that clear cut. I think that, for me, watching Robbins, there were really sort of tragic or sad moments in his sets. Um, and that is is really interesting to me, right? If we go with the classical idea of a comedy as having a happy ending as as uh, sort of compared to a tragedy which ends in death, like a comedy ends in a wedding, so to say, um, and a tragedy ends in a funeral, then perhaps the the the, the way to parse your teacher's line is that um, what's tragic is that the story ends in a in a wedding and not a funeral because 
uh, it's unfair or it's undeserved or it's shallow or something. So like, in other words, the men, the men can be saved and that's the tragedy. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I had never thought of it that way, but in some ways I think that really captures it. Seth, Seth can be saved, right? There's no question that he can be saved, but will he, like, is he able to, um, that, that to me feels like at the heart of the book. Have you seen the film Tar? No, I've heard a lot about it. Mm, it's a good one. I re- I recommend it. But the reason I mentioned it is just because um, I think the question of can the person be saved is very much connected to the Jewish question of teshuva, repair, or repentance, or becoming whole. Um, and Tar is about, I think, also very much centers on a problematic protagonist um, that you kind of you see the world both through their lens as well as through the lens of other people. And there, there's a huge discrepancy between the two. Um, but this Lydia Tarr, the, she's like a composer. Um, it, the film opens with her opining about teshuva um, and defining it mus- musically as a kind of like time travel, um, which I guess, I don't know, is a, a, almost like a Mobius strip. Once you know the ending, then you look at the beginning through the lens of the end. Um, so if you know the, the problematic character achieves a reconciliation or something, then they're, they're no longer, you, you, you sort of forgive them in advance knowing that they're going to get to where they need to go. And then perhaps that diminishes uh, the weight of what they've done, like the ends justify the means. So I think Teshuvah itself is kind of a complicated, a complicated topic. Um and there's a reason why on, on Yom Kippur, Jews read the story of Jonah, who actually sort of was bothered by teshuva and didn't didn't want to go and offer it. He didn't want to offer the sinners uh, the opportunity to become whole because he felt that it was unfair. Um, but he's required to nonetheless. Hmm. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I'll need to see it. <laughs> so coming back to branding versus advertising can you um how do you think about the difference between the two and why is branding sort of more interesting or compelling to you than advertising i'm not saying i would necessarily say that branding is more interesting and compelling i think that in some ways it marks this really interesting evolution within the industry so thinking again about mad men like, if, you know, it's all about ad campaign, right? And the idea is that you can, you know, you, you run a campaign for a while and then eventually that campaign gets tired and then you need a new campaign. Like, it's a really smart way to kind of get clients to, you know, to like keep going back to milking the client, right? Like, well, that, you know, remember that amazing campaign from last month? Oh, that's like played out. We, you need a new campaign now, right? And so that was the money-making model for agencies for a long time. And then this other thing came along where the thinking was, oh, you know, these ad agencies, they're way too in the weeds. They're thinking month to month, you know, ad ads, ad buy to ad buy. They're, they don't have the larger picture for your company or for your product. And so what you really need is a, is a branding agency. You need someone who's going to live above um, the individual ads and sort of see the bigger picture and define the tagline and the logo and the brand idea and the strategy for what you really are at your DNA. And that's something that won't ever change, 
So ad campaigns come and go, but a brand stays forever and is this fixture. Um, and so really, you know, what that was, was almost like a rebranding of the agency. And it was a, it was a power play. This is all my, I mean, it's not like I read some history book on this, but this is how I sort of see it um, playing out, which was that suddenly all the agencies um, wanted to then, you know, say, well, we're branding agencies, right? We live above um, the people who make the ads. And that's sort of like lowly work, or if not lowly work, at least it's downstream from us. And so there were always these pissing contests, always these like battles between who really owned the brand. Was it um, the BBDO or Ogilvy guys who were making the advertisements themselves? Or was it the brand people who, who fancied themselves above all that, right? Um, and that tug of war was just fascinating to me. Um, it still is fascinating to me. So the agency where Seth works has recently undergone a transformation from an advertising agency to a branding agency, which is um, on the one hand, a really surface level change, but also I think part of why it's fascinating is that yes, like the, the economics of it and, and the, the battles that you sometimes see between agencies. But the real reason it was fascinating was that that idea that a brand was better than, or a brand was higher than, that a brand was something core. When in truth of fact, and maybe this is just cynical Ben, like a, a brand is still an exterior thing, right? It's still something that lives on the outside of, of an organization or anything. And so that, that, that maneuver, um, rhetorically and practically, I just, I, I was fascinated by, and I wanted to get into the book. Mm. I'm coming at this as a total outsider on these sort of technical distinctions, but when I hear brand, like I think of, let's say iconic companies, uh, Coca-Cola, if you want to go historic, or you mentioned Nike, um, or more contemporary, let's say Apple and Google. And I don't think about their brand in terms of branding, as in what did an agency do? Uh, maybe that's because I'm naive and, uh, you know, I don't have sufficient gratitude <laughs> for that work. But I think that, like, the brand is in some sense just the fact that these are beloved products that have been around and that people trust. Like, we we buy a can of Coke, um, and yes, we think of ads uh, associated with it, but like we also just do it because it's like the word Coke is a word. You know, Frank O'Hara wrote just having a Coke with you. Like he didn't write just having a soda with you. Um, and so the fact that like the word Coke even just became a common usage noun, even though it's a proper name, is like proof that it's not a commodity and that we'd pay the premium for the sort of brown sugar water um, just to be able to call it a Coke. Uh, and similarly, like, it's not a phone, it's an iPhone. Um, but I but I kind of attribute the bulk of that success to the company for producing something that is beloved rather than, let's say, to the opticians or cosmeticians or whatever who present the company's story in a compelling way. Am I, am I wrong? Is that, a, is that offensive to somebody who works in branding? Like... I know um, Warren Buffett sort of in his early days focused on just buying um, discounted stocks. So like looking at rundown companies and trying to get them on the cheap. And then when he met Charlie Munger, 
um, Munger convinced him to switch his philosophy to buying um, companies that he thought would have great brands that would stand the test of time. And that's when, you know, Buffett started buying companies like Coke and Geico. Um, but I don't think he was, for example, buying them because a branding agency like put a lizard on Geico. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like he he just thought this is a well-run company. They've got a they've got a moat. Um, nobody's going to be able to take away their business. And then there's this there are these the intangibles associated with the value of the business, and that that's what's called branding, at least from a finance point of view. The the brand is like the value of the company that isn't on the balance sheet in a in a tangible way, but but still can be written written down as like this is part of the intrinsic value of the company. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I couple things to say here. One is I, I have this poem where I talk about how um, in the entire world there's really only one universal word that everyone understands across like six thousand spoken languages, however many languages there are, and on planet Earth. There's really only one word that if you utter in almost any village, any city, anywhere, um, people will know exactly what you mean. And that word is Coca-Cola. It's the only one. Um, That is just, I mean, to zoom out for a second, that is just wild, right? To think about like humanity and the fact that that is our, it's not, it's not a word that means like peace. It's not like shalom. It's not, you know, hello. It's not love. It's, it just happens to be Coca-Cola. You go anywhere and, and they know what that word means. There's no other word in any language that has the same, um, and here's a real industry word, penetration, right? <laughs> it has like gone really deep um, into, into whatever it is we are. Um, and, and on the other hand, just feels completely arbitrary on some level because as you say, right, like brown sugar water, why should that be the thing that um, we all understand it, it. It will perplex the aliens when they arrive, for sure. Or maybe not. Maybe they'll be Coca Cola branded. Um, like we'll just have like a you know a spaceship that's got like the red polar bear situation. You know, it'll just pop up one day during the Super Bowl. Um, but you know, I think to your question of like a like a brand like Apple, right? Um, your point about well, is it really great branding, or do they just have terrific products? Um, I, I think that good branding feels invisible, right? And so I, I can say, and I don't know if I'm violating any NDAs, but I, a lot of the clients that I worked with, um, you know, they, they would want to do partnerships with Apple. And whenever you do a partnership with Apple, it is impossible. Like you can't just photograph an iPhone and include it in your ad. They are exceptionally strict about how you use their image, how you use their logo, how you like anything has to go through a thousand approval and will probably still get denied on the other side. So am I here to tell you that, you know, your iPhone is only a great UX experience because of, of the branding, you know, no, I'm not going to say that, but I do think that, um, that sort of discipline and curation is a huge part of maintaining the mystique. And no doubt there are great products that, that you never heard of, right? That I'd never hear about um, because their, their brands are not nearly as strong. Mm. Maybe another way to ask the question is, what is an example where, let's say, a brand strategist was external to a company and drove the value for that company in terms of their brand, as opposed to the strategist at the company being the, the CEO 
um, hi- hiring or outsourcing branding to an agency. Like I, th- I feel like the agency does the execution, which is good, but it doesn't actually work unless there's the, the, the strategy is authentic and coming from the company itself, if you know what I'm saying. Like, or, or do you feel that branding can actually be a way of giving a company its, its identity from the outside? I think there are a lot of, um, it, it happens both ways, right? So some companies have um, their agencies from within, like they don't contract with, that, with outside agencies. They just have like their own internal brand team. Um, and others, I think the majority of companies do just, you know, do all of it external, some of which is for political reasons. So um, for example, I, I worked on, you know, naming a product uh do you remember? Um, do you remember the Nintendo Wii from a while ago? Okay, so I, I didn't come up with the name Wii, but that was something that that was one of our Nintendo was one of our clients. They wanted to name um, the Wii, and part of the reason this is not specific to them, but part of the reason you contract with an outside agency is just to avoid the internal politics, right? So and so who invented it wants to call it one thing. But, you know, the comms or the sales team wants to call it something else. Like, it's just, it's just, even though it's going to be exorbitantly expensive to contract with an outside agency, um, you'd rather have someone, it's like one throat to choke. You'd much rather have one person from the outside um, be the one who gets it right or fucks it up rather than, you know, just dealing with months of internal squabbles. So I think that's part of it is you, you just want to get an outside perspective. And also, you know, the idea is that, People who work at agencies have expertise. They do this all the time. They, they do it for a thousand different clients. Surely they must know what they're doing. Sometimes that's right. And sometimes that's wrong. You know, what has the adjustment been like moving from corporate to academia? And do you miss, do you miss corporate or do you feel like you have ways of kind of getting some of the, the buzz? <laughs> That because because I mean I guess here I'm going to project a little bit I'll I'll reveal my own hand here but I I feel like I've gone on a little bit of the opposite journey where I started in academia and you know I so I did four years in grad school and four years in rabbinical school with with no gap <laughs> between undergrad and then I was released into the wild and I've been kind of doing my own thing since. Uh, since graduating and I quite love the freedom and have actually cozied up in some ways to um, being more in the working world um, just because I feel like academia's incentives were so misaligned. Um, And like, at least in corporate, like there's a profit motive in a way, like people are transparent about what they want. Whereas in academia, it's like unclear what the goal is. Like you start out saying maybe the goal is to change people's minds, but then it's like, oh, actually it's to get published. It's to get promoted. It's, and so you have all the dysfunction that you have in any organization, but then nobody's getting rich <laughs> and there's more scarcity. <laughs> yeah, all that, all that is right. I mean, as I'm speaking to you, um, you know, I'm, I'm an adjunct at, at Rutgers in the creative writing department. I mean, we've just gone on strike um, because, you know, ad- adjuncts in particular are just, you know, paid absolutely nothing and they're expendable and, you know, higher ed is in collapse. And I mean, it's, listen, it's a, it's a, <laughs> I was talking to, um, I have two young kids, so I hang out at playgrounds for fun. That's what I do now. Um, and I was talking to one of the other parents 
And um, I was saying how I, you know, I worked, used to work as a, a copywriter at a, a branding agency. And um, now I'm a poet and a novelist and I teach at, at Rutgers in New Jersey. And she was like, oh, that's such an interesting pivot. Um, and even that word pivot, like it struck me because it's such a, it's such a business term. And I, I was like, yeah, like, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it is, I mean, she's not wrong, right? It was a pivot. It's just pivot implies a kind of, you know, like you moved from what it, it, I guess what struck me was it sounds like such a business savvy term when in truth of fact, like I made a terrible financial decision. Like I, <laughs> it was less a pivot and more like a pitfall. Um, I, in many ways felt I had no choice, right? I, I, I just love creative writing. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom so much more that, um, it wasn't a pivot so much as it, it felt like a, a personal necessity for me. Having said that, it comes at great expense for all the reasons that you talked about, right? Um, I have no job security. And even though my students are great, like I, you know, if my student evaluations were terrible one semester, it's conceivable I would just like not get a contract extension. And um, I don't get health insurance. I get it through my wife's job. I mean, like all, all these things, right? Where it's frankly shameful what what higher education has become um, in this country, and it's it's really worrying to see the ways in which like contingent labor is taken advantage of, and PhD students who leave without any promise of a job. Um, so you know, yeah, I'm I'm not here to glorify it. In, in many ways, I'm I'm I wish that I I could be in a different industry, but at the same time, I know that having presented to clients. And been in those boardrooms, I'm I'm so much more fulfilled being in a classroom, even when the ceiling tiles are moldy, and even when you know, like my chair has like one leg, and I, you know, like I'm 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 going down with the ship, right? And I will say that being an adjunct is it, it's the best worst job in America. Um, I've described to you what's not great about it, but what is great is I have total freedom. I have no one looking over my shoulder and telling me what to teach or how to teach, and um, that distance is part of what helps me write my books. I think I'm not on a bunch of committees, you know, that's a powerful Testament. Uh, and I think a good ambiguous, you know, note to close on, which, which for me, I think raised a question raised by your book and by a lot of, um, a lot of contemporary books right now, which is just kind of, where's the, where's the home for the thoughtful person? Where's the home for the artist? Um, I think that's a, institutional question it's also a deeply personal question and it's of course uh i think a sociological question as well so um thanks thanks for you know going on this journey of personal necessity and uh and doing that labor of love and you ten, 10 years is a long time to spend writing a, a novel but um i'm glad that it's going to see the light and that i got to read it yeah, thank you so much for for taking the time with me and with the book. And um, I really love your podcast, so it's it's an honor to to join the ranks here. <laughs> awesome. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharadkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. 
You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.